0: Well, good morning. It's Monday morning, the 16th of August, and we have a number of international headlines to cover quickly here at the outset of the hour before we get to our conversation with Dr. Carl Truman, um, which I am very much looking forward to. So if you have not already heard, um, Afghanistan has fallen to the Taliban. Last Tuesday, we discussed the uh, updated assessments from U.S intelligence officials, they were revising their assessment of Afghanistan. At that time, they warned that Kabul might fall within 90 days. Other anonymous um, sources were offering a much shorter timeline saying, well, it could actually fall in as little as 30 days. That was six days ago. Afghanistan has fallen to the Taliban. Um, A lot can happen in six days. That was my uh, immediate thought when I considered that it was just six days ago that we were considering that it might fall in as little as 30 days or maybe 90 Um, A lot can happen in six days. So as you are having these conversations today, uh, maybe we could provoke people to think about all that can happen in six days. God created it all in six days. God instructed Joshua to march around the city of Jericho for, well, six days. And then the walls came tumbling down. Exodus 24.10 reads, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it. For how long? Six days. And then on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. Gospels of Matthew and Mark both tell us that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up what we now call the mountain of transfiguration six days after. So I'm going to let you go and read what it was six days after because, you know, I'm going to provoke you to go get into the Word of God today. Um, In John's account of the timeline of the life of Jesus as we approach what we call the passion, he tells us that Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, six days before the Passover. So if you ever want to make a timeline, like each one of the gospel writers gives you hooks to do that. And this is one particular way to chart out the timeline that John offers in his gospel of the events um, that lead up to what we know as the greatest reversal in all of human history, which didn't take six days. Took a couple of hours on the cross, took three days in the grave, and everything is changed forever after that. But the signs of the times don't change. And so I want to uh, turn quick attention to the conversation about the signs of the times. Um, because there are uh, those who are using that language in relationship to the events unfolding in Afghanistan. So former New York Times and Wall Street Journal reporter Quentin Hardy, who is now the editorial uh, head of the editorial board for Google Cloud, called this, what's happening in Afghanistan, uh, signs of the times. Choppers on the roof. The president has fled, but the telecoms are fine. Talking about uh, how all of the news is now coming via social media. So let me give you a couple reading the sides of the Times touch points really quickly. The milkman. That would be a sign of what times? Taking your shoes off to pass through security at the airport. That would be a sign of what times? Clear backpacks. Students passing through metal detectors to enter schools across America. Masks. Headlines today. This is Saigon on steroids. One description of the efforts of Americans and others to flee Afghanistan. Signs of the times. I want you to read Luke chapter 12 today, and I want you to see what Jesus says about our ability to interpret the signs of our times. We'll talk about Haiti a little bit later. We have some other international headlines to cover as well. But I want to get to our conversation with Dr. Carl Truman. You know him as the author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We have talked about it here on air. It is fantastic. Today, I'm going to talk with him about well, he's been YouTube, he's been censored on YouTube. He has a piece in First Things about Joshua Harris and ex-evangelicalism that's really fascinating. He's become a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and he thinks dogma drives the drama. All that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us again this morning, Dr. Carl Truman, who now has such a long list of things that I could say about him that I hardly know where to start. So I'm just going to say he's a professor at Grove City College, which is one of just our most excellent uh, centers of higher education for Christians in the country. He is also now a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Carl, welcome back.
2: It's great to be back. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. So I would like to start with What did you say? What did you possibly say? What was going on when YouTube decided you had um, committed a content violation during a talk you were recently giving?
2: Uh, I I have honestly no idea, as I believe YouTube have failed yet to be precise. And the lectures are available on YouTube. They pulled the live stream for some reason. Uh, I was just giving a talk on sort of summarizing the arguments of my book and looking at the the rise of the modern self from Rousseau through to Freud and beyond. And uh, what was obvious is that somebody out there is watching me and simply wanted to disrupt the proceedings, I suspect.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's exactly what happened. And uh, we want to allow you to take a few minutes to actually remind us of who we are and the water we're swimming in in 2021 give us a little reminder of the content and the approach of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is Dr. Truman's book. And we do have additional copies to give away today. Um, and so all you do is text the word book to 877-933-2484. So give us the, uh, give us the reminder, and then I'll be sure that we send everybody the link for, to our prior conversation um, about the book.
2: Well, the argument of the book is fairly straightforward and in some ways, I think, unimpeachable. It's not a particularly loaded argument in terms of being pro uh, this position or anti that position. It's a a basic historical argument that over the last four or five hundred years, our understanding of selfhood, our understanding of who we are, of what makes us tick, has moved inwards and become profoundly psychologized and identified with our Inner feelings, and in the last 50 to 100 years, those inner feelings we've come to think of them as primarily sexual, and that has led to various what I call cultural pathologies, transformations, aspects of the culture. Uh, one of which is that uh, sex has moved from being uh, an activity to being an identity. Uh, one is that, that transgenderism has become plausible because bodies become less important and inner psychological feelings and convictions become decisive for identity. And also, um, uh, freedom of speech comes under pressure because we don't like to hear things that make us, to put it rather bluntly, that make us feel sad or bad about ourselves. And I suspect whoever it was who got me pulled from live stream the other week had be made to feel a little sad By what I was saying.
1: (laughs) I
0: think that the willingness um, to be offended, and then the idea that if you are to offend me in any way, you lose your right to speak in public. Um, Your viewpoint should be discriminated against and removed from the public square. You should be removed from the public square if I am offended by what you say in any way. Um, That That's just not, that is not a way forward for a country and a people um, who understand speech and religion to be fundamental freedoms.
2: Absolutely. Um, Clearly, it it stands uh, in opposition to the First Amendment. Now, the First Amendment is all about government power. It's not about the power of private companies. But the spirit of the First Amendment clearly points to the importance of a society where Freedom of speech is very, very uh, important to, to what goes on. And what's effectively happening at the moment is when you start to uh, to block freedom of speech in this way is that the the elite consensus, whatever the elite consensus happens to be at that particular moment, becomes an authoritarian consensus. And people like myself, Ryan Anderson, J.K. Rowling, I never thought I'd put the three, those three names in the same <laughs> sentence, but, but people who uh, have some form of public platform and yet do not go along with the uh, the, the The elite cultural consensus can find themselves in trouble can find themselves being silenced or cancelled as I think the the trendy uh, modern word for it is
0: all right he just referred to Ryan T. Anderson, one of our favorites as well. Ryan now serves as the president of the ethics and Public Policy center, which uh Carl now serves with as well, so we're going to ask him when when he come when we come back from a very brief break we're going to ask dr Truman like. What does that mean? And are you still teaching classes? Like, you know, inquiring minds want to know. We'll be right back. So, lot during these uh, little pauses that we take during the program. And during that little brief pause, I learned that Dr. Truman um, is actually working on the dummy version of the book for those of us who either read it with a thesaurus or have had to reread it several times in order to understand it, as one of the folks on our text line this morning has shared. Um, So tell us uh, what what we can be looking forward to.
2: Well, next February, there's a shorter version of the book with actually a a little bit of uh, a few other arguments as well. A bit of extra arguments that I've developed since the big book was published. But shorter books coming out from Crossway entitled Strange New World. It'll be about 160 pages long. I've also done a study guide for it. And tomorrow I head to Chicago to record nine 10-minute lectures which will hopefully form a good base for something like a Sunday school class or a midweek discussion. So we're trying to make the material much more user-friendly. I had to do the big book first to establish my credibility and to get the argument clear in my own mind. But I boiled it down for youth group leaders, hard press staffers, etc. Anybody who doesn't have you know, six weeks to spend on the big book can now get hold. <laughs> get hold of a short one in the near future. That
0: is such a gift. So thank you so very much for that. OK, so I am familiar with the Ethics and Public Policy Center, but there may be listeners who are not. What does it mean to serve as a fellow um, at something? And, you know, does that mean you get to keep your day job?
2: <laughs> for, for me, yes, I get to keep my day job. I will still be teaching at Grove City College. Uh, the classroom is my first love and I love uh, the college. So no, no change there. Uh, what it means for me is that I will now be more self-consciously part of a team that's working on key issues relative to the the morals the ethics of the of the public world that we now live in the EPPC really brings together a group i think there's 25 30 of us as fellows like-minded individuals all with different specialities all with different competencies but working on on trying to promote what you might call classic Judeo-Christian values and virtues in the public square and in public policy.
0: So we have a listener um, right now on our text line who is wondering um, what you might say to us if we want to slow or interrupt or change the trajectory of some of these cultural tides.
2: Yeah, it's a very difficult question, uh, and partly because the I, I think the the cultural tide is so powerful and so deep seated, it's going to be very difficult to change things at what I would call a macro level or a national level any time in the near future. So I think for for typical listeners, uh, three things. First of all, pray. Obviously, prayer is powerful. So we should be praying uh, for our society, praying for our culture. Secondly, I think focus on the local, the people that you can actually have influence on most directly. Are your neighbor, the people uh, that you work with, the people that you have actual contact with day by day. So think about being a, a, a witness to the light in your local Area, And then thirdly, as you get the opportunity to, to speak uh, in, in larger contexts, for, for most of us, that would be casting our vote, I suppose. Think about for whom you should vote. Uh, go and find out what the different candidates in, in the elections stand for and vote according to your Christian conscience. So I would say uh, prayer, local engagement and, and then thoughtful engagement in the, in the broader political process would be the three things.
0: So the listener says, thank you so much. I work at a high school. This is very helpful to me. So just wanted to let you know. We just, people are loving it. People love you. I, I hope you know that. I, you might not hear that very much, but we are so, <laughs> we feel totally free to say it. Like, we love you. We love what you're writing about. We love how you're writing. I just read in First Things um, your piece on Joshua Harris, and I thought to myself, even just in the opening, um, in the opening paragraph, I thought, okay, this is so refreshingly honest. Um, and so uh, for those of you who want to read it, you just go to FirstThings.com. The, the article is called Joshua Harris's Message Remains the Same. So Joshua Harris is going to be a name, Dr. Truman, that lots of listeners recognize. Tell them what he's up to now and then you know, just briefly summarize the argument that you make because I think it is so spot on.
2: Well, Joshua Harris made his name and gained his platform uh, a couple of decades ago. He's a little bit younger than me, so I sort of missed the, the kerfuffle surrounding his, his, uh, his initial impact in evangelicalism. But he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye that became a bestseller. He was very young when he wrote it, and it really inspired the uh, the purity culture that was very dominant in American and, and to some extent in British evangelicalism, uh, really late 90s and the early 2000s, which was you know, in, in some ways was aimed to preserve some good things, to, to emphasize the importance of sexual purity in the Christian life. So it was not an entirely bad thing by any stretch of the imagination. Then a few years ago, uh, Josh Harris repudiated the, the Christian faith and now he's uh, offering a course to help you recover from the damage caused by his earlier book. And there are a couple of problems with this. One, I, I have great difficulty with somebody doing a lot of damage and then getting you to pay them uh, to help you put it back together again. Although if you do say you were damaged specifically by his book, I think he will give you the course for free. But secondly, the the whole ethos of the course as you read about it on the the Commercial web page that's selling it is therapeutic. It's all about you. It's all about finding your best life. Now is really repackaged the spirit of the age using sort of postmodern psycho babble, uh, and is selling it to uh, his audience for I think two hundred and seventy-five dollars a pop. So he's once again making money out of I think exploiting. Uh, ordinary people. And the essential product, of course, is Josh Harris himself. It's not that you can't get this kind of pablum elsewhere, but you're buying it from him. You're ultimately buying Josh Harris once again.
0: So one of the other places that people um, can actually find you is um, at at Credo, um, and you are a Credo fellow. Um, So it did not surprise me to read the piece in First Things, where you argue that dogma drives the drama. Dogma has a bad rap. Um, So talk about uh, dogma and how it how it does drive not just the Christian life, but I would say drives the drama in every narrative. I mean, we could look at Afghanistan specifically and have that conversation today.
2: Yes, well, I'm riffing off the the famous saying by Dorothy L. Sayers, who you know, in the 1930s was facing people saying that, you know, Christian dogma is boring. And her comment was, no, the dogma is the drama. Actually, the the dynamic, the power, the punch of the Christian message comes from its truth claims. And we live in a world now where to an extent, if it works for you, then it must be true. Uh, tell me your story, I'll tell you mine. The, the Josh Harris kind of thing in, in some ways. And the, the burden of the article I wrote there, which was based on a, a lecture I gave at the Napa Institute conference uh, about a month ago, the burden of the argument there was as we move into this post-Christian age, we, we need to emphasize the practical things that will make Christianity attractive, such as hospitality, loving our neighbor, etc. But we mustn't forget, That hospitality and loving our neighbor, these things are grounded in Christian truths, that Christian hospitality and Christian love looks and acts a certain way because of the biblical story, the account of things that actually happened the revelation of God in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I I think you're correct when you say that the the dogma drives everything. That means, of course, that Christian hospitality and Christian love looks different to the love we find in the world around us. Uh, What is love according to the cultural consensus at the moment? It's affirming people, getting out of their way, allowing them to be whatever they want to be. Well, that's rooted in a specific view of the self, Uh, the Christian view of love is a sacrificial one, sacrificing oneself for other people. Why does it look that way? Because that was what God in Christ did for his people. So yeah, dogma, very, very important.
0: All right, you can find a number of things that Dr. Truman has written at firstthings.com. You can also find him at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is eppc.org. His book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, we have copies to give away today. So if you'd like to enter the drawing uh, to receive one of those copies, just text the word book to eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. He is an all-around, not just good guy, but really solid thinker. And he's in trouble now all the time. So he's fun to watch and fun to listen to. And, you know, I'm just going to keep saying it. I eventually want to read the book, The True Man, because I think, yeah, I think that we need... Right? We need the positive focus of what it looks like to, uh, to to be true people of God in this generation, in this culture. And you already have the name.
2: I do. And I have to say, Carmen, it's very therapeutic coming on your program because I just feel <laughs> great about myself by the end.
0: We love you. Like I have this is what My listeners are saying like they're texting in. They're like, please tell him I totally love him. I feel like he gets it. So <laughs> there you go. All right. Thank you Thanks so much. Be much. blessed today. You have certainly blessed us. That's Dr. Likewise. Carl Truman. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. You'll need a thesaurus alongside you if you're like me, um, but you need this book. It is just excellent. We're giving away copies today. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. All right. Somebody just observed today might be Smarty Pants Day on the show. We have four doctors we had Dr. Carl Truman in the lead next we've got Daniel Bennett from John Brown University, then Dr. Linda Mental and then Dr. Walter Strickland so it's not like Dr Day in the traditional sense of the word no more um, Apple a day keeps the doctor away no we uh we're having them on to share with us their wisdom their insights, and engage with them on the headline news of the day. So Daniel Bennett is joining me next. You know him from the Uneasy Citizenship blog and from John Brown University. He's going to join us. We're going to talk about the mask wars going on now. We're also going to talk about, well, this has a question mark at the end of it, evangelical schism. Yep. Those conversations up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
2: When traveling to a foreign country, you may employ a translator, someone to help you understand what's going on around you. Well, for some of us, it seems like our kids are speaking a foreign language right at home. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I've met a lot of parents who give well-meaning advice to their children, but it's interpreted much differently than it was intended. The kid barks some kind of defensive comment, and parents are left wondering, what did I say wrong? At this point, it's helpful to put yourself in your teen's shoes to translate your comments, if you will. You might be surprised that your well-intentioned comments actually came across as judgmental. Next time, pause and translate your comments before you speak.
1: Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: Joining me now, Daniel Bennett from John Brown University. He's going to bring us up to date on what he's working on, what he's looking at, what he's paying attention to, and help us understand the mask wars and the coming schism in evangelicalism. There you go. We can get all that done in a few minutes, Dan. Welcome back, man.
1: Yeah, easy. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Yeah. So, um, first of all, what are you paying attention to? What are you working on these
2: days?
1: Well, the semester is starting here, uh, officially here at JBU, so getting my classes ready to go. But as far as uh, ongoing projects, um, looking at uh, conspiracy theories in the church, I've recently written a book chapter on that. Um, Looking at uh, current issues, I know we're going to be talking about uh, evangelical schisms. Um, Looking at, uh, there's an interesting article in Christianity Today uh, recently about how Gen Z is approaching evangelism, and it's encouraging, Mm. uh, although it looks very different. Uh, from how maybe previous generations have conducted evangelism. Um, Plus, there's a great article in the Washington Post magazine recently about polarization geographically uh, and how we're seeing people move to city centers if they want to be at the center of influence. But really, that just takes them away from their hometowns, and it makes the people ultimately that they're governing unfamiliar to them. So great article today. That'll be coming out in my newsletter later this morning.
0: Oh, awesome. So if people want to get the newsletter, remind them how they find it, because that's a that's yeah, just just a sur- great way to keep up with what you're paying attention to.
1: Yeah, no, I'm at danielbennett.substack.com. And uh, if you just search for Uneasy Citizenship Substack, you'll find it. and You can sign up and get those updates.
0: There you go. Uneasy Citizenship. You're looking for Daniel Bennett uh, at substack.com. All right. Let's talk a little bit about um, mask wars. We, we certainly experience them in our own communities. Some of us experience them in our own families. Um what are what are you seeing and what do you you know sort of take the take the temperature right now on this particular issue.
1: Yeah, so in many ways it's become kind of the uh to to you know risk, risk using a battered term it's become the culture war issue of the moment, right? It's become kind of the symbolic gesture and you could almost identify not, all, not always, but you can almost identify someone's politics and ideas based on their response to, to wearing a mask. And we saw that in our community recently. The local school board um, had, a, had a pretty <laughs> lively debate last week about whether to require masks uh, for, for Siloam schools uh, here in Siloam Springs, Arkansas. And uh, by three to two vote, they decided not to require masks. And, of course, that just divided uh, the community, just as if they were to require masks would divide the community. Um, You know, I think there's good reasons uh, for folks who don't want their kids to wear masks. I think the difficult situation is... You know, how do we respect the rights of others without being too self-focused? And I think that's a problem on both sides of this issue. If there are only two sides, how do we have a constructive and listening conversation without becoming so self-focused? And that's not just on mask wearing. It's on any public policy issue where you're going to divide people.
0: We're seeing um, I mean, I, I just read an article this morning that uh, a university just to the west of me has like disinvited A group of people to speak. And part of the reason is that, you know, they're known to be sort of COVID deniers and people who um, do not want people wearing masks and, in fact, barred people from entering their church wearing a mask. And I'm thinking to myself, that does not feel like the spirit of um, of the church where we would the stumbling block would be the mask, like something something's going on that's a spirit of division, and the mask is just the, you know, current presenting issue.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what I was saying. It's the current culture war manifestation of this larger cultural problem. Uh, you know, I, I do understand, you know, some churches who say, look, we're going to have a service that is, we're going to require masks in our congregation. Uh, maybe you have a service where it's optional. That's how a lot of local churches here have done it. Um, but at our church, for example— uh, you know, full disclosure. My my wife and I are fully vaccinated. We'll get our kids fully vaccinated when they're eligible. Um, but even in church yesterday, there was just a, a handful of families, uh, including ourselves, who are who were fully masked during the service. And that's partially because our employer has asked us to be fully fully masked, even if we are vaccinated when we're in big crowds. Uh, as we start camp, as we start school here or, or, or uh, college classes here in a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, I think I think churches should be more. I don't, I don't think you should ever have a situation where a church says you can't wear a mask in our congregation. Um, I think you just said it. It's the, the spirit of the church is a little lost, if that's what we're getting hung up on.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's, um, let's talk about this conversation about evangelical schism. Let's remind people what mm-hmm. schism is. And when we talk about church splits, and then, we t- and then we try to have a conversation about the unity of the body of Christ, like what is fracturing evangelicalism from your viewpoint?
1: Yeah, I mean, historically, and I think Bonnie Christian's article in Christianity Today, uh, just recently over the past few days, uh, makes a right point that this isn't a new phenomenon, right? I mean, we've had evangelical and schisms or Protestant schisms since the Reformation, right, where we have churches splitting for a variety of reasons, some reasonable, some maybe not so reasonable, Um, You know, but these schisms are essentially fracturing and polarization, where we have groups of Christians uh, in in the Protestant tradition who are saying, well, you know, we don't think that what you're doing is in the right uh, service of the church. And so we're going to form our own body or kind of organize ourselves over here. Um, And we are seeing some of that institutionally. We're seeing some debates right now with the United Methodist Church about usually over issues of same-sex marriage, for example, or ordination. Um, And so we're probably heading toward a schism in that denomination. But Christian's article is really talking about the divisions in evangelicalism in general and how our political and social identities are now bleeding over into the church. And I think she makes the right point that that does somewhat threaten the unity of the body more than the denominational differences that we've seen over the past several hundred years.
0: Um, So, Daniel, when when you sort of look into the future— I mean, I think that we, we look at the ways in which every mainline denomination to this point has, in the last two decades, gone through the kind of division that the United Methodist Church is now approaching. I am still surprised when I come across a person who, let's say, um, has always been and continues to um, identify as a member of the PCUSA or the ELCA Um, or the Episcopal Church, and they're surprised to discover they are in denominations that are not just fully affirming of the LGBTQ agenda, but are using massive denominational resources to advance those um, agendas in the culture. Um, There is a disconnect between the person in the pew and what happens at the denominational level, and there are just a lot of folks who they identify personally in a way that may or may not actually be reflective of the group that they say they're a part of. One of the people who just comes to mind, and this is sort of the the same example but in reverse, would be Nancy Pelosi, you know, identifying mm-hmm. as, uh, as a Catholic and yet, you know, Catholic bishops saying um, that is not what that looks like.
1: Yeah, and so I think, you know— we could we could have a whole separate discussion about the the, the role of, of abortion and Catholicism in the United States at the elite versus mass level. Um, but you know, I think about you were mentioning you come across people in, you know, PCOSA or episcopal denominations and are just really surprised about what the larger denominations are doing. I mean, to some extent, you know, that's, that's reasonable, right? They are going to be surprised. But I think part of the explanation is, how much do how much does the average parishioner really pay attention to what's going on at the institutional denominational level in their congregation? So, you know, it, it's not maybe that surprising that you have someone who may, who's maybe grown up in a church that is with the PCUSA. Um, they've just kind of always attended those types of churches or the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Um, and then when they're an adult, they start to look into this more, and they say, "Wow, I didn't realize that's uh, that's where we've been." Um, and so once once you start to actually, and I'm not saying this to say that people in those nominations don't do this, but once they start to really inspect what's going on in the nominations, that's where you start to see some of this tension come into play in their own lives.
0: All right. We're talking with Daniel Bennett from John Brown University. You can find him and his Uneasy Citizenship blog on Substack. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. All right, this next conversation we have held for a few weeks because I didn't quite know how to have it nor who to have it with. So Daniel Bennett is going to help us understand who is Viktor Orban and why should we care? So there's apparently an American love affair going on among nationalists, among American nationalists, um, with Viktor Orban of Hungary. And so, Daniel, who is he and why should we care?
1: So Viktor Orban is the leader of Hungary. He's been in that position for cumulatively just a little over a decade. There was a little break uh, for a different uh, leader uh, back in the early 2000s, but he's been in power for quite some time. And uh, one of the things he's campaigned on, one of the things that has brought him a decent amount of popularity in Hungary is an emphasis on Hungarian identity. So uh, think about these policies and how we might perceive them in the United States. He's been really emphasizing uh, restricting immigration from other countries and encouraging Hungarians and other countries to come back. He's been uh, trying to strengthen the role and the, and the vision of the local church in Hungary. He's been uh, touting economic policies that would benefit uh, the people as a whole, as opposed to elites he 's been pushing back against institutional what he what he would describe as institutional uh, corruption or pushback against his agenda and some of these things have taken place through empowering Victor Orban to take more executive or unilateral decisions in the government by restructuring the courts and uh, having a larger say in redrawing the districts from which the parliament is drawn, uh, and that has in turn brought him more power. Um, So it sounds familiar. We can draw some parallels here in the U.S., right, on immigration, populism, things like this. And there is a segment of the American right, especially the more nationalist-leaning American right. So think of someone like Josh Hawley, certain someone like Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson on Fox News recently went to Hungary to spend some time there and and learn more about this. Um, And it's no surprise that this is currently popular among that segment, this idea that we should be emphasizing nationalism and maybe our own American identity in the way that uh, Orban has proposed that for Hungary.
0: So when you say, um, you know, when you offer that litany at the beginning, like, none of that sounds on the face of it bad. And so I think that's part of the challenge, right? Like, why would it be bad for us to want Americans to, you know, re immigrate to the United States, uh, those maybe who have left the country? Or um, why would it be negative for us to emphasize, I mean, certainly putting an emphasis um, on the local church, like, that doesn't seem like a bad thing. I mean, you know, so as you work your way down that list and we're hearing you say those things, a lot of us are listening with ears that are like, well, none of that sounds really bad. So <laughs> exactly. I think – well, I think that – so what we need to understand is what is nationalism? Like that's you – know because draw the distinction there between all those things which sound on the face of them good and then nationalism, which on the face of it is bad. <sighs>
1: So those policies, by themselves, like you just suggested, they're not inherently bad, right? Encouraging re-immigration or, lo- bo- you know, bolstering the local church. I think the concern from Orban's critics uh, here in the United States, but also in other European countries, is the mechanisms uh, by which he has been doing these things. So, uh, you know, for example, uh, he has taken more unilateral authority to, uh, dr- you know, gr- draft decrees from the presidency, diminishing the role of the elected representative in Hungary. Um, He's done things that are incompatible with a classical liberalism focused style of government. Um, So, uh, you know, passing idea or passing uh, bills or uh, encouraging legislation against uh, the LGBTQ community, not necessarily giving rights, but actually tamping down on certain things. We've talked, I'm sure your listeners have heard this term drag queen, uh, drag queen story hour, right? Yes, Um, absolutely. A lot of, A lot of a lot of those on the right today would point to Hungary and say, well, that doesn't happen there. Well, and and you're right, because because Orban has essentially come down against that community pretty strongly. Um, And so you do see this schism certainly among the left, obviously, in the U.S., but also among some on the right. I mean, if your listeners are looking for a good discussion here, take someone like Rod Dreher who has been spending a lot of time in Hungary. He writes for the American Conservative. He's written a lot about this issue. Your listeners can go and read his perspective. But then compare that to someone like David French for The Dispatch, both of whom are conservative, both of whom have identified as conservative for decades. But they have very different visions about the role of nationalism in our society, right? Rod Dreher recently wrote that uh, essentially liberalism, classical liberalism is dead, right? So we basically have to choose between a, an illiberalism on the left or an illiberalism on the right, and he's going to choose to side with this illiberalism on the right that we see with Viktor Orban. And David French is saying, well, that's ridiculous. We can still have liberalism in the United States where we can disagree with each other and still prosper without giving into this more, um, I don't maybe soft authoritarianism of nationalism that tamps down on those with whom we disagree.
0: So that distinction between Ill- illiberalism on the right or illiberalism on the left, like right? yeah. if that if that becomes the forced choice, that I think is a real point of danger in our culture. If that's where we think we have to be we are forced to choose between illiberalism on the right or illiberalism on the left. And when we are using the term liberalism, those of you who are listening out there, we're talking about it as a historically classical way of working Um, out our differences in public together, uh, me allowing you to have your viewpoint and speak it into a common space, you allowing me to have my viewpoint and speak it into a common space, and really, collectively, the best idea wins. Like, that's sort Mm -hmm. of classic liberalism, you know, at least in Carmen's slang way of defining it. Um, So hopefully, (laughs) okay. So um, uh, do you think we're at the point where I have to choose. I have to make a forced choice between illiberalism on the right or illiberalism on the left. Or is there still the potential for us to find a way forward together?
1: So I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I, I think uh, Dreher's concerns, while while reasonable, aren't aren't quite uh, destined to come to come to pass. Uh, you know, we still have. I mean, we just spent the last four years under a Republican president that uh, was was arguably the most nationalist president we've ever had in the United States. Now we've just started, uh, we're within you know, the first year or so of the Biden administration, and you can disagree with him on policy. But again, nothing much has changed in terms of institutional government. Um, and I mean, going back to Bill Clinton, we've traded parties of presidents over the past almost 30 years now. So I think we are disagreeing with each other, but we're doing it in a way that is generally productive. I think the danger would be when the loser in a particular election, whether it's on the left or on the right, all of a sudden says, you know what, this is unacceptable. We're not going to abide by these terms anymore. And that's, I think, where we get to the Dreher point of, OK, well, I guess we don't I guess we have to choose. You got to pick your poison at this point. I don't think we're there yet. Um, but you you might be able to start to see some of these things forming on the horizon. I don't think it's inevitable, but we could be headed in that direction.
0: All right. You guys have heard Rod Dreher here on the program. You've certainly heard David French here on the program. You've heard Daniel Bennett. Uh, Hopefully we are bringing voices forward in the conversation that help us to understand how various people are reading the signs of the times in which we live. And hopefully we are becoming equipped to engage positively, constructively in the cultural conversations of our day and to do so in ways that honor Jesus. That's the goal every single day here on Mornings with Carmen. So, Daniel Bennett, thank you for equipping us in that direction uh, today.
1: Amen. Thank you.
0: We really appreciate it. You can find Daniel Bennett at John Brown University. You can also find him at the Uneasy Citizenship blog, which is on Substack, which is Substack.com. All right. We'll be right back. All right, let's do one more international headline uh, at the close of the hour today. Top of uh, prayer concerns today would be the people of Haiti and the people of Afghanistan. We've talked a little bit about what's going on in Afghanistan. That is absolutely a developing story. The story is also developing in Haiti, which experienced a 7.2 magnitude earthquake. Many people are dead. Rescue efforts are underway. Hospitals are totally overwhelmed. Lots of roads are blocked. This is just weeks following... um, the assassination of Haiti's president. And yes, it just comes 10, 11 years after the earthquake that killed more than 220,000 people. So the death toll continues to rise. Um, one of the things that came to mind as I was considering uh, the people of Haiti and their plight was just the ongoing need and desperation. Um, and so let's be praying, let's be mobilizing resources as we are able. Uh, let's recognize the blessings of our life and the care and concern we're called to have for the least of these, our brothers and sisters, particularly those in the most impoverished uh, nation in our hemisphere. You know, Haiti is just not that far from us geographically and yet it is worlds away. And one of the reasons it's worlds away is because it has just so many generational issues. And many of those are related to poverty most of those are also related to governance. And so, you know, when we openly have conversations being critical of um, the government that we have here in the United States of America, one party or another, or one politician's actions or another, let's just remember, we also have a very, very stable government. And that in and of itself is a huge blessing. So we have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. In the meantime, let's be praying for the people of Haiti and the people of Afghanistan. We'll be right back.